So we're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 11. But first consider kind of the progress here of this little timeline. So I'll kind of go from your left to your right. The Bible gives us an idea of, well, the Bible tells us God's history in the past and, and present future events, I should say. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, kind of seem on edge there, like what's with this new heaven and new earth? You know, we don't know much beyond that. But the Bible does speak of ages past. But then the Bible speaks of in the beginning God created, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. He made everything in six days. Uh, years after that, the world was filled with violence. It was filled uh, with wickedness, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God saw the wickedness of man, it grieved him in his heart. It repented the Lord that he had made man, that is, he was just sorrowful of it, not like he had repented of sin. And he sent a flood on the earth, all the, stri- all the kind of weird rock formations and odd things you see around the world, and the Grand Canyon, and all kinds of stuff like that, and are results of the breaking up and fracturing of the crust of the earth and shifting of the continents and breaking up of the fountains of the deep and windows of heaven, both from top and bottom, flooding the earth. Noah was saved in the ark with his family, three son, his wife, three sons, and daughter-in-laws, and two of every kind, and the flooded the earth, of course. And then Christ's coming was prophesied to the Jews. He did come. When Jesus did come, They were expecting an immediate political salvation, the Jews were, and when they they saw he wasn't doing that, um, they thought, this can't be the one, you know, and they by and large rejected him. Of course, the Pharisees rejected him because Jesus' focus on the first coming was to save them from sin. That's That's our big problem is, our biggest problem is God, and our biggest solution is God. So we have a sin problem. Jesus came to take care of our sin problem so we can safely meet God and have a relationship with God. So Jesus came to take care of sin. The second coming is to take care to, again, resume His covenant with Israel and deal with them, and they'll believe on Him and set up His kingdom. And so here in this timeline here, it shows a little bit of that, Christ's first coming. We're living in the church age between the cross and the thing that says Christ's second coming. We're living in the, what you call the church age, the last 2,000 years. That part, that little tiny space there, tribulation, and then Christ's second coming, that part, the, point, the arrow that points to tribulation, we believe there's a, what Paul calls a mystery, an imminent event where in the moment a twinkling of an eye will be caught up, will be raptured together with the Lord. And uh, when that happens, soon after that, the, what we know as the tribulation will start. Much of what we're dealing with in the book of Revelation, basically from about chapter 5 or 6 until about, I think, chapter 18, deals with these seven years. And then Christ literally comes back with us, with Him, on earth, and we, He comes to stand, this will happen, He's going to come and stand on the earth at Jerusalem, defeat Antichrist and His armies, set up His kingdom. The rest of Israel that's alive at that time will believe on Him. Many of them will die between now and then, but they will believe on Him. And then He'll set up His kingdom, the millennium. There you go, thousand-year reign. 
Satan's bound for those thousand years in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. God chooses to loosen him at the end of that. Satan's loosed. He goes and deceives a segment of people in the earth at the end of the millennium. They want to go against God again. Futile. God destroys them. The enemies of Satan's thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. And then the, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And um, so just backing up, letting you see kind of that stuff. Right in that middle section is where we've been dealing with. Lots of events are told about in Revelation during the seven-year tribulation time. Again, when it starts, it'll start when we're out of here. Um, then will that wicked be revealed when we're pulled away, when we're taken away. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. There's some stuff I'd like to look at in 2 Thessalonians sometime about that passage, about the what I believe where the rapture is mentioned. It's interesting. And then even about the 70 weeks of Daniel. I know I'm saying stuff, you're like, ah, I don't know what you're talking about. There's stuff in the Bible that it does not hurt to study the Bible deeper. <laughs> it helps. Now, if you start thinking, imagining stuff in there, that'll hurt. But if you study the Bible deeper while comparing it with other scriptures, you'll be safe. But let's, let's go back now to Revelation 11. And what we have here in the book of Revelation, you have these series of judgments that are happening. And God's not just, and they're severe, but God's kind of dishing them out on humanity. While the gospel is being given, people, some repent and some believe, the 144,000 we know do, and another great host does because people are martyred and they're seen in heaven, but others are like, God, they still want to be, hang on to their idolatry, hang on to their fornication, hang on to their thefts and all murders in spite of these divine judgments coming on the earth, you know, the, a third of the sea turning to blood, the, all the creatures in the sea dying a third part of the day, a third part of the night is altered. All kinds of unusual events, geological, uh, cosmic events happening to shake up humanity. Some repent, many don't. And they want to choose to keep following Antichrist. The context here is that we're seeing these trumpet judgments. We're on the sixth one, and then between the sixth and the seventh one, we had these couple of parenthetical chapters. Chapter um, 10, we saw that mighty angel that came down and in John's vision there with the mighty angel. And now chapter 11, these two witnesses. Tonight the message is about God's two witnesses. Let's just read verses 1 through 13, and we're just going to look at some characteristics of God's two witnesses. It'll be that simple. We'll read the whole chapter together first. Notice, or I'll read it out loud. You follow along. Revelation 1, 11, verse 1. John said, there was, given unto me, there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles." And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore 
days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were, were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven." Here's this passage. Again, the key word is my two witnesses. Notice verse, key phrase there, verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses, the Lord says. These are, so we are supposed to witness. Anybody have to have, anybody, has anybody ever have to give witness in court? Anybody? Have to go to court for something, okay? A couple of you. All right. I haven't had to do a witness in court, but... Giving a, being a witness is to give testimony, to testify, to speak of something that you have seen or heard or experienced. I'm witnessing. Sometimes we use witnessing in the receptive sense of I witnessed something, I received, I saw, I witnessed. But in this case, it's I witness in the, in the, the giving sense, the, the active sense, not the receptive or passive sense. Witness. To witness means to furnish information, to attest to, to tell. Some of you all have uh, witnessed maybe some incredible... Anybody ever seen falling stars? Usually when I see one, it's, a, it's about... It's, my wife's head is turned that way, and I'm like, oh, look at the falling stars! And she goes, I did see it! And it's like, it's gone, you know. I've seen witnessed falling stars. I like to see that, you know. Um, oh, the other night, we got this trampoline. We got a good deal on a trampoline last week on OfferUp. And uh, the other night, I was like, it was cooler out. And so I said, Deb, let's just go lay down on the trampoline. We laid down on the trampoline. Of course, Charity was there with us. And we're looking up at the stars. And I'm like, let's look for a satellite. You know, I always like, the stars are cool, but let's see if we can see a, a satellite moving. And I didn't see one. It might be a little hard in the city. But, you know, I try to look for things and tell people, look what I saw. You know, on something in the sky. Did anybody ever see Halley's Comet? You have to be like my age or older, you know. All right. How did you see it? Telescope? Or did you see it with the naked eye? 
Yeah. Did you? Good. All right. So some of you kids will probably see it. it comes around every 75 years. So Haley's Comet. Anyways, we've seen and we've witnessed different things. So here's witnesses for God. They're saying, this is what we see. This is what we know of God. This is what we're supposed to proclaim to you of God that God has said to us to say to you. To my two witnesses. We don't know who these witnesses are. We could speculate. I think it's a waste of time to speculate unless God tells us, you know, like, is it Moses? Is it Elijah? Is it Enoch? It could be Joshua and Zerubbabel from the book of Zechariah. They were likened unto those two olive branch or olive trees. We don't know who they are. It's just, they might be nobody, nobody else. They might be somebody nobody else knows. God might say, hey, and you in heaven, and you in heaven, come, let's go down here. We got something to do. We don't know. But it's two remarkable witnesses that God sends in the worst of times on earth. I mean, again, during this time, this is probably about the middle of the seven years right here. You got, um, you got catastrophic events happening. You got the Antichrist mesmerizing the world. There's likely a one-world currency, one-world government, one-world type of religion, and we'll get to some of that. It's an it's a, uh, unusual time. You got, you got uh, globalism right? Globalists, okay? And so, uh, and you have a, there was a pro-Israel sentiment for a while, and then by the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist turns on Israel. And there's this temple, we're going to get to that in a minute, that's desecrated. And so you have these two witnesses that God sends. Who are they? You know what's interesting? I read this recently, and I don't know if all the Mormons believe this, but I read something that I read a there's, a, there's a, there's a Mormon movie called, quote, Unlocking the Mystery of the Two Prophets, Revelation 11, Part 1. Here's a promotional for this uh, Mormon movie. It says, quote, did you know that Revelation 11 prophecy aligns with the events in the life of prophet Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram? It is, is it possible the two prophets have already come and will come again? Who are the two prophets in Revelation 11? Two messengers who will lie dead in the great city, an assassination by enemies, a forbidden burial by persecutors, and bodies lying in the street for three and a half days are only a few of the clues found in Scripture revealing their identity. The two prophets have been generally shrouded in mystery until now. Did Joseph and Hiram Smith perform a specific ministry within the period of three and one half years that triggered the fulfillment of thousands of years of ancient biblical prophecy? The answer is no, they didn't. <laughs> but they, there's, a, there's kind of a little fascination with some of these two witnesses. And apparently, I'm not, I'm not going to speak for all the Mormons. Uh, perhaps the, there's a segment of them, apparently, that believe it's Joseph Smith and his brother. And um, it just doesn't fit. If you were to read the text with common sense, it wouldn't fit. But who are they? Well, here's what we do know. Let's walk through what we do know. We're gonna know we know their place. We know their power. We know and can see their pause, that's their death, and we're going to see their unpause, okay? Those are kind of our four discussion points here. Notice their place. From what we can tell, they are going to be preaching and prophesying and witnessing from the area of the temple. Look what it says, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, There was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship with therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, Measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles in the holy city, shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. 
Now, it, the first thing we learn regarding the two witnesses is the is the the place of the temple. When I say the temple, we're talking the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Um, and what we're learning is John. He's again. He's seeing this vision, and this this angel says, "Hey, go measure it." It's like it's not like the angel says, "Hey, I wonder how big that is." He knows how. He knows the size. It's for John's sake to measure the, the, the footprint of the temple, except where it says, leave out the, uh, measure not the, uh, the court. Don't measure the court, just measure the temple part. For some reason, there's some measuring of the temple. Is there a temple yet over there? There's no temple in Jerusalem. There's a little controversy is, of, is the temple... Okay, let's pause a second. <laughs> let's back up. There was a tabernacle in the Old Testament... Solomon built a real glorious temple. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. There was another one rebuilt by Herod. That was destroyed in AD 70. Jesus prophesied of that being destroyed. There's not been a temple since AD 70. There's not been a temple for a long time, a Jewish temple. And they longed to have one. And there's not been blood sacrifices for at least that time. But they want to have one. They want to have a temple. Israel, most... I, should, I don't know if it's most. There's a good segment of Israelis. I can't speak for all of them. I haven't done a thorough survey of all of them. But there's a thing, something called the Temple Institute. How many of you have heard of the Temple Institute? Somebody? Okay. They are gathering together uh, plans. They are, you know, um, the garb of the priests, the high priest, the instruments, the brazen altar, the, all that stuff that Moses had given to, to, re, to restart Temple practices in a real temple. They're making plans. It's not some hidden conspiracy. I dug this up somewhere in the corner of the internet. It's becoming common knowledge that they are trying to put a temple up. For all they might already have it prefabbed somewhere else to where they can bring it in and set it up quickly. We don't know. But we do know they're trying to prepare, they're preparing to set up a temple and resume animal sacrifices in Jerusalem, in one of the hostile areas. Israel itself is a hostile area. In Jerusalem itself, I think it's split. I mean, you have a mosque. Is there not a, what is it, the Dome of the Rock mosque or something? And so there's a controversy. Is the original temple where the mosque is? Some have said, yes, it is, and therefore it must be destroyed. Others have said, no, we've done more surveying. It's actually 100 yards northeast of it. We don't know, but we do know this. There's going to be a, if we believe the Bible... There will, be an, there will be another Jewish temple built again. Not that we say, hey, we're for that, because Jesus did away with all that stuff, and not that we'll run over to it and get practicing it, but there will be another temple built sometime so that the Jews can resume their practices so that, according to Daniel, and Jesus emphasized this, and Paul said this in 2 Thessalonians 2, so that Antichrist can go into this temple after making peace with them for three and a half years and breaking his covenant, so that Antichrist, this mesmerizing world leader, can go into this temple that's going to be built one day and say, I'm God, and desecrate it. And, and basically be a gigantic slap in the face to the Jews and basically spit on their sacredness of their temple so he can break his covenant with them. So there's going to be a temple one day. So... There's a, he's saying, hey, measure this temple, measure it out to John. Um, 
measuring communicates ownership and preservation, that God's in control. This place of the temple that will be in Jerusalem one day will be a scene of great glory and also horror. Again, the Antichrist will eventually go in there and desecrate it. Now, it appears that's where the witnesses will be preaching from. Notice that's their place. So secondly, their power. We're going to look at a couple uh, particulars about their power. Verses 3 to 6. He says, I will give power unto my two witnesses. Unto my two witnesses, I will give power. Notice a couple things about their power. They have power for a good while. They get power for a good while. You know, you ever have batteries, they run out? Yannick's already saying, Pastor, you need to switch out these batteries here before the next service. And I'm like, all right, let's do that, you know. And uh, these guys have power for three and a half years, 1,260 days. He says, I will give power unto my two witnesses. They shall prophesy 1,203 score days clothed in sackcloth. They have, they have God's power. Now, I'm going to just, we're going to, a thought here, we need God's power too. We're not going to have the expressions of it like we're going to see here in a little bit. (laughs) But we need God's power. We need His power. Did you know that um, Jesus said, without me you can do nothing? The Christian life is not a life I live on my own. It's a life I live with Christ, the Christ life. It's not not anymore I, but Christ that liveth in me. I need His power. So he says, I will give power to my two witnesses in this tribulation time. They have power for a good while. Notice they also have power even though they're in sackcloth. Look at this. He says, I'll give power to my two witnesses. They shall prophesy 1,203 score days clothed in sackcloth. You know, when you go to do something, it's nice to have some comfortable clothing on. You know, I, I like that. This, this is actually, I like this fabric. You know, I'm spoiled. It's kind of fine something. It's not itchy. Um, sackcloth for three and a half years? Whoa, that's a long time. Sackcloth was, was a heavy, coarse material that people would put on usually worn to express sorrow, to signify a sorrow or solemnity. They were either mourning or they were preaching something that was very, very serious. These guys have God's power, and they have, even, even though they're in a, perhaps an irritating sackcloth. We get, we're so spoiled as Americans. We're like, eh, I got this tag right here. Cut it off. Uh. You know, I was like, I was a bratty kid like that. I don't like my socks. I don't like the seam on them. Eh, I bothered my mom about it, you know. I don't like these socks. So now when my kids do it, I'm like, oh, I was kind of like that. Yeah. You know, you know. Or the old pajamas, the footy pajamas that are rough on the inside. Those are kind of rough, you know. That's the closest thing to sackcloth I ever had. Wanted to turn them inside out. It's fussy on the outside. Come on. Turn them inside. Ah, that feels better, you know. But these guys had sackcloth. It was, and this was serious. So this especially communicates to the Jew. They're still communicating to the world because this stuff's going to be televised. Their death certainly is. It's seen around the world in the resurrection. And um, they're, they are showing that we mean business about what we're saying. We mean business as we're prophesying to those coming by the temple, which could be Muslims, certainly are Jews, and 
the rest of the world and perhaps CNN, Fox News and all the other cameras around. They're prophesying to the world to repent. Perhaps they're preaching the Ten Commandments and how we've broken them and Christ is the answer for broken commandments to those who've broken commandments. They're certainly preaching Christ, but they're prophesying God's law, God's gospel for three and a half years, not in some kind of Armani, you know, fancy suit with $1,000 shoes, you know, some kind of fancy preacher. This is nothing attractive, but everything serious about what they're saying. That, and they have God's power. Another, they also have God's power with unique abilities. Ooh, look at this. Unique abilities, I'll say. I haven't seen anything like this. At least this first part. Notice what it says in verse Verse 4, they're likened, there's an image in the Old Testament about having God's power of His Holy Spirit. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the, old, of, of the earth. I'm not going to run over there, but it's uh, comparing them with a passage in Zechariah 4. But notice their power that they have. Verse 5, if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. I mean, you're like, am I? is this sci-fi here? Is this another Marvel hero? What is this thing here? This is real. The two witnesses outside of, they're in Jerusalem, they're at the temple, they're preaching, they're prophesying, and maybe somebody finally gets tired of them. Maybe somebody comes to plant a, a bomb by them. And they know it. They try to hurt them. Before the guy runs away, <laughs> fire comes out of his mouth and devours them. Maybe somebody goes and there's a sniper somewhere and he goes to, goes to shoot them and, and, and they know of it. And they can shoot fire that far. I mean, if they can shoot it out of their mouth, that's supernatural enough. Why not be able to shoot it a half mile away, you know? Fire comes out of their mouth if somebody's trying to hurt them. It's because God says, you're going to prophesy this long, and then we're done. And if somebody tries to kill you, it can't happen. You're bulletproof till I'm done with you. Wow. They have unique powers. They're able to defend themselves there in this case. God, get, This is a unique thing here. If any man will hurt them, verse 5 says, in this manner, he must in this manner be killed. Um, fire, devouring my enemies. Now, notice also they have unique abilities in defending themselves and, with, and unique abilities in de demonstrating God's hand is on them in other ways. Notice verse 6. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. When and how they do that, we don't know. Perhaps they can say, all right, nobody's listening around here. It's not going to rain. Ah, whatever, you crazy old preacher in a potato sack, whatever, you know. And it doesn't rain for as long as they say. Man, I'd like to get some lettuce again. It's not been raining. You can't get lettuce. You have to run over to five countries away to pick up something, and it's three times the price. I mean, they, they're just going to shut things down how they want. Turn the faucet of heaven off. Wow, 
What are they doing? They're not, they're not like sadistic. <laughs> Suffer, people. That's not what it is. God's not sadistic. Like, we're trying to get your attention. They have power to shut up heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecies. Power to turn waters to blood. Remember Moses did that? And to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. They could just say, let's, um, that government building over there, it's going to have filled with frogs tomorrow. If that's what they want to do, that's what they can do. That uh, nice, beautiful mall over there in Jerusalem that everybody keeps going to, and it's going to be filled with lice tomorrow. Or it just there's, they could do what they want as often as they will. The point is, they're trying to communicate God's message. They have power to do it, but notice their pause, verses seven to ten. Their pause. They have a little pause here. Verse 7, it says, When they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So they do die, but we're calling it a pause because they come back. They die. Notice here it says they die after they finish. Their pause happens after they finish. So it says there, Verse 7, and when they shall have finished their testimony. Again, what was happening as they're preaching, they're prophesying, saying the gospels, preaching God's law, preaching God's truth. If somebody is trying to kill them, they, the fire would devour them. If they wanted to, they could bring a, a plague, local plague. They could shut up heaven. It's like they were, they were bulletproof. But when God was done with them, He lets Antichrist, it's called the beast that ascendeth out of the, out of the bottomless pit. We'll, we'll define that later. The, this Antichrist is going to kill them. God's going to let the Antichrist kill them. Not until they're finished doing the job He has for them. You know, in a sense, that's true for us. This is a little aside. If I give, this is just a little aside for all of us. If I give myself to God, God, I give you my life, whether you like your life or not, if you give yourself to God, in a sense, it's fair to say, I'm bulletproof till God's done with me. When God's done with me, He's done with me. It may not look like the story I wrote, but I'm going to let Him write my story. So they're finished, and then the, the beast comes and He kills them. Verse 7 says the the beast makes war against them, overcomes them, kills them. Their pause is also in the context of a hostile environment, an opposing environment. Notice what it says there. Verse eight, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. This is talking about Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem is not being given good names here. Spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. There's something ugly about Jerusalem at this point. You know, let me just, when, when I, uh, another side here, when we speak about prophecy, and when I speak about this as your pastor, and I say, hey, watch out, you know, the world's attention is, goes to, 
on Israel and this is a focal point of prophecy? It is. But don't think it's a focal point of godliness. There's still Christ rejectors. There'll be many of them saved. There'll be at least 144,000. And then many more that need to be saved later and many that die and some that follow anti. So it's not that everything's a focus of godliness. So it says that they die and their street and their bodies are in the street of that spiritually city that's spiritually like Sodom and Egypt. So these men die and there's a pause here. There's a pause on their own burial. Look what it says in verse 8. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. The people, it says that um, they're not buried. That's a disgraceful thing if you refuse to bury. They of the people and kindreds, look at verse 9, and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and in half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. That is, that's a shame, isn't it? Let them lay out there. Finally, those two crazy kooks are gone. Antichrist, we knew there was something about this guy, the beast. We knew there was something. Look, he finally defeated him. They didn't shoot any fire out at him, did you? Didn't pull, call down any lightning or fire on these guys, did you? Now you're gone. And they leave them there. It's kind of like they're just parading around their dead bodies in the streets for three and a half days, all happy and excited. They're, it's, they're, they're treated with disgrace, they're, but they're also rejoiced over. Look at verse 10. They that dwell upon the earth. So it sounds like it's uh, not just the local, but around the world. They're happy about this. Shall rejoice over them and act like almost they're going to have another Christmas day here. Shall make merry, send gifts one to another. Because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Can you imagine? It's like, hey, you got, a, you got an Amazon gift? Why am I getting an Amazon gift? What's this about? It's the dead prophet's day. They're gone. You know, they've been gone a couple days now, and you got a gift from your friend. Wow, he's excited about it. Cool. People are sending gifts one to another. They're all, they're that, it's saying they're that happy that these guys are gone. People that want to hold on to their sin, hold on to their ungodliness, that's how they are. They're, they're this type of people. And then when, they, when they finally those voices of truth are out of the way, Oh, finally. And they think they're happy. And they think things okay. Just because a person muzzles the truth and feels good about it for a while doesn't mean it's still okay. So they're sending gifts one to another here. And you're rejoicing. But there's an unpause here. The fourth point here is their unpause. Verse 11 says, after, look at verse 11. After three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. I would say so. So here, this is, this is incredible here. They're, can you imagine this? They're, all, they're in the street. I don't know if they're bloody, bruised, whatever it is. I'm sure they look dead. Cameras are on them. Somehow it says that uh, people saw this. And all of a sudden, you know, people are happy. You know, maybe a CNN's there, you know, and 
looking at them. We're just here for the third. This has been three and a half days now since these two kook preachers, these wild-eyed right-wing religious kooks have been dead now. And and, uh, all of a sudden, wait, what's that? Oh, there's something moving behind you. What's that? You know? And, and perhaps you see the skin color change on them, and oh, now it looks like blood's flowing, and, and they start moving, and then, and then you hear a voice. The Bible says, look at what it says there. They heard a great voice, verse 12, from heaven saying, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Yeah, I bet people scattered. Whoa! You heard a voice from heaven, you see these dead bodies moving. Whoa! Get away from them. They might, they might have some extra fire in their system. To, to launch out at me. Maybe they are listening to everything I said, trash-talking them while they're laying down there. I don't know. But they come to life, and it frightens people, and they hear a voice of God from heaven, a great voice that says, Come up. They see Him ascend up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies, they looked. Verse 12, they beheld them. Wow. Isn't this amazing? This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Hmm. Produces fear. Look at verse 11, the end of verse 11. It says, Great fear fell on them which saw them. Shows divine approval. Verse 12 and 13. You hear a voice from heaven come up. The fact that they are resurrected says, well, maybe God was part of this. And the fact that you hear a voice, a mighty voice from heaven say, come up, like this is a God thing. These guys are of God. And the fact that, look what follows verse 13. The same hour there was a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell. We can presume perhaps that it was Jerusalem. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Giving glory to the God of heaven doesn't mean that they necessarily converted. It means they acknowledged this is of God. Wow. So again, these two witnesses, God plants them on earth, gives him their power, gives them his power. They prophesy for the length of time they're supposed to. They're bulletproof till God's done with them. They Shoot fire out for people that are trying to hurt them. They can call off. They can call plagues out uh, whenever they want. They can stop the heavens. When God's done, the Antichrist kills them. The world thinks it's all over, and they resurrect and frighten the world. They ascend up to heaven, hearing a, a voice from heaven. There's a great shaking. It's almost like God says, "You shouldn't have messed with them." Shakes it up just a little bit. It's nothing compared to some of the other stuff. And they go up. And their job's been done. They've given, they've borne witness to the world. I meant to say this. We'll back up a little bit. Notice it was, notice how the, the language of them being resurrected, verse 11. After three days and a half, what is it? How does it say they're resurrected? The spirit of life from God entered into them. The spirit of life from God. It's amazing how that. Look in the Bible, and when it talks about God making life and remaking life, often it says His Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit of God moved on the surface of the earth. The Bible says that God breathed in man's nostrils the breath of life and became a living soul. Job said, "By the Spirit of God hath made me, and by the breath of the Almighty I have life, Job said. 
God's Spirit gives life to physical people, gives spiritual life to us as well. But God's Spirit also will re-give us life. Romans 8.11 says the Spirit of, that quickened the Lord Jesus will quicken our mortal bodies also. God's Holy Spirit is the key for us physically being resurrected somehow. But think about it, it's also the key for my spiritual vitality. Sometimes I'm not everything I need to be spiritually. What is the key? What do I need? I need God's Holy Spirit to quicken me. I need God's Holy Spirit to give my spirit life, to quicken me and give me power. That's what I need. That's what you need tonight. He says in Ephesians 3.16 that He would strengthen you with might by His Spirit in the inner man. And so here are these two prophets. They testify, they die, they resurrect, and God shows this is of me. Now, a couple, just a couple of takeaways, and we'll just wrap this up as we wrap it up. So God says, we, ye shall be witnesses unto me. We don't have to have fire breathing out of our mouth to do it. Some of us would like to, right? Man, I wish I had that. Some people are saying, you already do. You know, you got bad breath. <laughs> we don't have to be able to... You know, we can be just as pleasing to God witnessing as plain old people as they were with supernatural abilities. God is, will be just as pleased. You do it. You, we have done what we could in our little non-miraculous bodies telling people about Jesus. We're supposed to witness too. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. Witnessing, another thought is, witnessing is always needed, especially in the darkest times. Times are bad. Times are very bad. People are being blinded by Antichrist in this time. But God says, let's still shine the light. Let's still shine the gospel light during this time. Witnessing is always needed. The opposite of witnessing is to be silent, to say nothing. We need to not be silent. We have to say something for the Lord. And another thought is, we need to just... As I read the book of Revelation, the overall thing it shows me is, I need to stand for God. I need to stand for God now. You know, it's going to be harder in the tribulation time, and people are going to pay a price for standing for God. I need to stand for God now. This is easy compared to what it's going to be like. And I'm not saying we won't have very hard times even before the rapture, but I need to stand for the Lord now. I need to not, you know, you know I do want to, I want to live a full life. I want to raise my family and help them. You know, live a full life with my wife, raise my kids, see grandkids. I want to do that. But, you know, I need to be willing to stand for the Lord at all kinds of costs. And that's what we need to do. I read this. This is interesting. Courage. The Israeli settlement of Netzarim in the heart of the Gaza Strip was a point of much conflict with militant Palestinians for several years. The conflict was so great that this settlement was evacuated in 2005. In other words, you know, you go to live in Israel right now, it's not like, yeah, nice, cool little Gilbert suburb, all quiet and peaceful. You might hear a rocket go over you one day. And they kind of get used to that stuff. In some places, it's very bad. Such as Netzarim near the heart of the Gaza Strip. The conflict was so great there that the settlement was evacuated in 2005. Those who lived in Netzarim 
did so at a great personal risk because they felt it was an important part of keeping their land free. Huh. There was a certain school teacher, Sholmit Ziv, who lived in Nezarim in 2001, said this, quote, I don't live where it's comfortable. I live where it's important to live. Isn't that interesting? To him, again, this is not a Christian issue. I'm assuming this man's not a Christian. He's like, this is important for me to live here, you know, in his own way, in his mind. As a Jew, kind of occupying that place. I'm not trying to live where it's safe. If that was the case, he'd definitely get out of Israel. There's a lot of Jews going back to Israel. Do you know that? Going right into the fire, so to speak. I don't live where it's important or it's comfortable. I live where it's important to live. What would happen if we Christians would quit worrying about being comfortable and started doing what was important to God? I just need to do what's important to God, even if it's not always comfortable or without threats. That's what I see from these witnesses. And let's thank the Lord for our time tonight.